If you do not have a Bible, you're more than welcome to use one of these black pew Bibles in front of you. You're also welcome to take it home and read it. It contains the words of life. If you're not familiar with reading the Bible, the chapter numbers are the big numbers on the page and the verse numbers are the little numbers in the page. And uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 this morning. Now they say that when you begin to preach, you should have an introduction that really grabs the attention of everyone. They might be distracted, they may not be locked in, so you've got to try to say something to get them to, to focus. Well, here's the thing to get you to focus this morning. I'm going to tell you a little bit of sad news. This morning's sermon is going to be shorter than our usual sermons. Yes, yes, yes. Now, if you're a visitor and you're thinking, uh, oh, wow. Uh, hey, you should know that what you probably think is going to be a short sermon and what our people think a short sermon is, two different things. Okay. Uh, our text this morning is just going to be one verse. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. I'll read aloud, you follow along with me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. So this morning's text begins with the word there right at the beginning. You see it, it says, finally. Which is odd because I don't know if you've noticed that we're only halfway through the letter, right? And to to complicate things, halfway through chapter 4, still not quite at the end of the letter, Paul has another finally, right? So it feels a little bit like Paul is writing a letter like so many Baptist preachers preach their sermons. They have a final, final, final point, you know, the fifth lastly before and everyone's just like, we got to get to lunch. I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. I think the word finally here is Paul's way of sort of putting a bow on the first half of the letter. So in the first, remember, chapter and verse numbers were added later. That wasn't in the original. So Paul is kind of giving his readers and his listeners a little bit of a break, right? He's telling them pause, kind of wrapping that up, starting something new. Thus far, In the letter, Paul has been writing about joy in the midst of suffering, his own suffering and the suffering that's coming for the Philippians. And he's been telling them again and again how they need to rejoice in the midst of that because God is sovereign over it. But the the letter is about to shift. Paul's about to go, as he enters into what we now know of as chapter 3, into the discussion of justification by faith alone and what it means to be a true Israelite and a bunch of other themes that seem to be divergent from the first half of the letter. So, Paul pauses here, and for one last time, he tells the Philippians what they need to be doing. He says, rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord always. So, here's the heart of the text. I'm going to give it to you sort of in one sentence. Christians need to be reminded to rejoice. Okay, note takers. Christians need, capital N-E-E-D, need, big time, to be reminded to rejoice. Now, my fear for this morning's sermon as we begin is that you'll tune me out because you got that already, right? Like, 
which Christian needs to be reminded to rejoice in the Lord. That's Christianity 101, right? Yeah, other people might need to hear that, but not me. Rejoicing in the Lord, that's just kind of what we do. Friend, trust me, we all need to hear this. We all need to be reminded to rejoice in the Lord. I hope you'll agree with me by the end of this sermon. We're going to come back to that reminding aspect of the sermon later. For now, let's begin with this question. Why does Paul and God through Paul, Paul to the Philippians and God through Paul to the Philippians to us, command us to rejoice in the Lord? Why does he say in the Lord? Why doesn't he just say rejoice? Here's why I ask. If you look throughout the first half of the letter, as Paul's writing about joy to the Philippians, he seems to only do so in relation to human activity. I know, I know. It's crazy. I agree with the baby. It doesn't make sense. So just listen as I kind of walk through this real quick. Philippians chapter 1, and if you're a fast flipper, you can do that. Philippians 1, 4 through 5, Paul says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, so there's the language of a joy, of joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's a human circumstance. That's the church partnering with Paul, sending him money, sending him resources, sending him ministers. Philippians 1, 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So Paul says he's rejoicing over the preaching of the gospel. Another human activity, right? Philippians 1, 25 through 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So there the joy is tethered to Paul's visit to the Philippians. Another human activity. Philippians 2.2, 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So there the, the human activity is the church having unity. We agree with each other. Philippians chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. He says, I'm all the more eager to send him that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with joy. So here joy is tethered to Epaphroditus Going back to the Philippians, another human activity. So why does Paul say rejoice in the Lord when all of his joy language thus far is not, at least on the surface, connected to what God's doing, but rather to human activity? Well, the answer is what theologians call the doctrine of providence, which Paul very much believes in and teaches. The Apostle Paul sees that God's hand of grace is behind every human action, encounter, and circumstance. Uh, one theologian, R.C. Sproul, says that providence is the invisible hand of God. What he means is, is that you and I, we often look at the unfolding human drama before us. We look at human events and we merely see that which is happening at the level of the flesh. Right? We look out, we see events, we see actions, we see circumstances, and we see mere human activity. But not Paul. 
Paul looks at these events, actions, and circumstances, and he says, with the eyes of faith, I see God's hand invisibly at work. So when two Christians in the church are in a dispute, but they end up reconciling in love, right? People who don't have eyes of faith will look at that and they'll say, oh, I'm glad that they have the psychological tools to be able to like overcome disagreement. But if you have eyes of faith, you'll see that God, by his spirit, worked reconciliation by his grace in that relationship. When a wealthy Christian decides to write a really big check to support a a really important gospel cause, you might just look at that without eyes of faith and say, yeah, he's got a lot of money and sociologically this is what he's into. But eyes of faith will say, no, the Lord stirred him to count the gospel as more valuable than storing up a bunch of coins that he can't take with him when he dies. Bitcoins even. When a deacon goes to visit a sick member of the church, we see that God is moving in the heart of that person to care for his fellow Christian. This theology of providence, of God's invisible hand at work in everything, even through our efforts, is the reason why Paul can speak like this in Colossians 1.29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I toil, I struggle, nevertheless it's not my energy, it's his energy. Invisible hand of grace. So Paul commands the Philippians, and therefore God is commanding us to rejoice in the Lord, because every Christian should know that every joy we experience in this life is given to us by God. His sovereign hand, whether you see it or not, Sometimes we see it more clearly, sometimes we see it less clearly. It kind of doesn't matter if you see it. You should look for it. That's kind of why I'm preaching this to you today. You should strive to see it in all things. But even if you don't see it, it doesn't mean it's not happening. His hand is always working to bring us joy in the midst of difficult circumstances and so on and so forth. And this is what we need to be reminded of. This is what you need to be reminded of you not somebody else oh yeah i hope so and so is listening they really need to hear this they struggle to rejoice in the lord no you need to hear this we so easily let our eyes of faith dim into the eyes of mere cause and effect relationships We need to be reminded again and again and again that an electron does not circle the nucleus of an atom unless God causes it to for the joy of his people and the glory of his name. We need to be reminded that to rejoice in the Lord is supremely important because we are so quick to rejoice in ourselves, to rejoice in our circumstances, to rejoice in earthly means. All the while forgetting that God is sovereign. Now, you see that in the second half of the verse this morning, Paul says this. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Why does he say that? He goes, hey, you guys need to rejoice in the Lord always. And by the way, I don't have a problem with uh, repeating myself. Why does he do that? 
Well, he, he probably knows that the Philippians might be tempted to a little bit of exasperation as Paul says the same thing to them over and over and over again. Right? Parents get this. A father talking to his children, right? Saying the same thing. Children get tired of it. I know, Dad. I know, Dad. I've heard it a million times. I know, Dad. That could be what's happening here. Paul's trying to get out ahead of that. But here's an interesting question. Why does Paul think he needs to say the same thing to them over and over and over again? And the answer is what our brother Russell Berger pointed to as he began the service this morning. Just the simple fact that we have terrible spiritual memories. We're like Dory, you know? Just, our spiritual memory is like me when I meet you. I'm like, hi, my name is Sean. And then you tell me your name and then it's gone. Never to come back again, you know? We have terrible gospel memories. And by the way, this has just always been the case with gospel people. We have gospel amnesia. It's like we've been hit in the head and we have a brain injury. And we just can't remember everything that God is and everything that God has done for us. Just listen to this sampling of scriptures. This is, this is just from the book of Deuteronomy, which is significant because the book of Deuteronomy is the second time that God gives his people the law right before they go into the promised land. So this is like, you better pay attention. I'm, I'm saying this to you again so that I really, really hope you hear me. This is what he says, Deuteronomy 4.9. Only take care and be diligent, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. Another verse in Deuteronomy. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy 4.23. Deuteronomy 4.31. This is in contrast to the Israelites. This is in reference to God who never forgets. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget his covenant with you. Man, that's good news. That is good news. But his people always forget. Back to them forgetting. Deuteronomy 6.29. Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And you're sitting there thinking, Sean, somebody ever rescued me from slavery? Buddy, you better believe I wouldn't forget it. Wrong. You would. Deuteronomy 8.1. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and statutes which I have commanded you today. And the end result of our forgetting is, is it, it's not like just this amoral phenomenon where we forget and it doesn't have any negative consequences. No, every memory that should be good is pushed out by a memory that is sinful and not real. You begin to reinvent the past and you begin to take credit for that which God has done as you forget his works. Somehow his works become... You know someone who always has to embellish in their stories? They catch a fish this big, and by the time they get back to you, the fish was this big, and they were fighting for their life for it, right? What are they doing? They're trying to increase their own glory as they retell the story. That's what we do. Listen to Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 17. I'm going to fast forward. not going to do the whole thing. Do not forget the Lord your God who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. 
See, it's not just that we forget, it's that we fabricate new memories that put us at the center, make us the hero, that de-God God and make us God. And that's blasphemy. I could just keep going. These are just the verses that I pulled from Deuteronomy. So if you're listening to this sermon thinking, that's for them, not for me, I'll never forget my God, then you don't really understand the story of salvation as well as you think you do, right? Remember, the reason why Israel is in the Bible for you to read about today is so that you can see yourself in that story. The story of Israel is like a mirror that God holds up before your face. And in every failure of Israel, you are meant to see a failure in yourself and go, God, please help me because it's only by your grace that I don't do what they did. Our natural instinct in the midst of trials and tribulations is not to praise our God and to remember all of his past mercies, which then will strengthen us for trust in his future mercy and grace. Our instinct is to grumble. To complain against him. And I don't think I should have to like prove this to you, right? Just think about your own life, your own walk with God, and what happens. What's the first instinct when you find yourself in difficult circumstances? Is your first instinct to say, God, I've been through the ringer with you before. You've always shown up faithful. I trust you. Everything's going to be okay. Praise the name of the Lord. Or is your first instinct... To play the victim? Is your first instinct to grumble and to groan and to doubt? Is your first instinct to trust in yourself, in your own resources, in your own wisdom? Why do we do that? It's because we forget, which means that we need to be reminded, which is funny because we never need to be reminded to complain. Like with my kids, I'm never like, all right, kids, now listen, we're going to go out to eat, which is like, like, you're some of the wealthiest people in the world that you get to go out to eat, and you're going to get some really good food, and you're going to be taken care of, and, and, but don't forget to complain, because, you know, you're not going to get exactly what you want. I never have to say that. It's just natural. What do I always have to, to remind them of? Why are you complaining? Look how good God has been to you. Isn't that funny how that works? Another reason why we need to be reminded to rejoice is because our rejoicing in the Lord is one of the most powerful ways that we witness to a lost and dying world. Remember the way that Job responded to God in the midst of his suffering. Remember Job's wife. Job's wife, at her wit's end, couldn't see the invisible hand of God. And so she said, Job, God is obviously not happy with you. You just need to curse God and die. It's not a helpmate. Here's what Job said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Our ability to rejoice in the Lord like this, even as the Lord leads us through the valley of suffering, is a holy witness to a lost and dying world. Guys, Sometimes I think we forget, like we spend all our time around other Christians, you know, that are, and that's good, like we build a community and that's good. But like sometimes I think we forget that most people's happiness in this life is tethered to their circumstances. 
And they have happiness when things seem to be going well. And then they suffer when things are not going well. And it's just up and down, up and down, up and down. And it's like not 50-50. It's like 90-10. Because life is hard. So they're always down, always sad, always depressed, always struggling, always anxious. I'm not saying they don't do a good job hiding it. And then sometimes, every now and then, they feel like, oh man, I finally caught a break. I got a raise at work or my ticket disappeared and I didn't have to pay it. Praise God. You know, and, and they have like this brief flash in the pan of joy and then they go back down into the depths of despair. And then here you come, a light in the midst of darkness. And it's not like God is out there with a force field around you, like sovereignly protecting you from all of the bad things in this life. But he is doing something inside of you. And what he's doing inside of you is giving you the ability to rejoice even when all of these bad things happen to you. And then all these lost people, they look at you and they see you suffering and they see somehow, some way you manage to have joy. And it's not fake. It's not contrived. You're not painting a smile on your face. We can smell that a mile away. They see sincere, genuine joy even through the darkest circumstances and the deepest pain. Your marriage is crumbling. You lost your job. Your children are unwell. And somehow you have joy. That makes them say, what is happening here? Whatever that is, I want it. So my charge to you this morning, brothers and sisters, is not merely to rejoice in the Lord, but also to take up this work of reminding one another to rejoice in the Lord. This is your ministry to one another. If you're thinking, well, that's the pastor's job. No, no. My job is to equip you to do that to one another, to remind each other, to, to think like Job, to think like Paul, to think like Jesus, to see God's invisible hand of grace in every circumstance. What does this look like practically? When you're sitting with a fellow church member, after they've gotten that diagnosis that they weren't expecting, bear witness to the power of the gospel by rejoicing with them, even through the midst of tears. Even as you cry, rejoice in the Lord, because His invisible hand is at work. When your fellow church member is expectedly, unexpectedly laid off from their job, bear witness to the glory of Christ by rejoicing with them and promising them that no matter what, God will be glorified and they will be satisfied. Like I said earlier, you can tell here in verse 1 that Paul is trying to get a little bit ahead of some of the static of his children in the church. So what that means for you and me is that we should expect a little bit of static as we do this with each other. As we try to remind one another to rejoice in the Lord even through difficult circumstances, right? So just like parents... Your kids may get tired of hearing you say the same gospel truths to them over and over and over again. But you know what? They'll really, really appreciate it when they get older. Right? So remind them to rejoice always in the Lord. It's no problem for you, right? That's what the text says. Now you've got to tell yourself that. When you're repeating the same thing to them for the 15,000, you say, oh, it's no problem for me. And it's safe for them. 
In the same way, your fellow church members may tire of hearing you just faithfully and constantly reminding them that the Lord is worthy of our joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Sometimes we just want to pout, right? Sometimes we just want to be frustrated. I don't want to hear all that, you know? I just want to be angry. Ah. And then you come along and you go, I, I hear you, brother. I hear you, sister. And I'm with you in your pain. I'm with you in your frustration. I'm with you in your suffering. And we're going to find some way to rejoice together in the midst of this. In the moment, there may be some static and it may be confusing. And you may not feel like you're doing the best job and they may get frustrated. But when they're in heaven, they will look back and say, praise God. And they may even say, before they get to heaven, hey, thank you for helping me to rejoice my way through that difficult circumstance. You know, all of us, to some degree or another, have what the Bible calls itching ears. We want to hear something new. We want to hear something fresh. We always want something exciting, especially if we're young. Especially, listen, if you're in the age range of 18 to 25, I am singling you out in love. Because you are at particularly high risk for the vice of constant novelty seeking. You just, you just don't want to hear the same old thing. It's, it's cliched. It feels sophomoric. I, I want to hear something new and fresh. Oh, I hope you understand how dangerous that can be for your soul. What, 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 what we want to hear and what we need to hear are very often two different things. You know, Samuel Johnson once said that men more frequently need to be reminded of that which they already know than to be taught something new. Now that's the third time I've used that illustration this year because to repeat myself is no problem for me and it's safe for you. (laughs) Think about how this applies to your daily walk with Jesus. Paul says it's no trouble, no trouble for him to repeat himself. So that means it should be no trouble for you to repeat yourself as you minister with the gospel. So parents, don't be afraid to repeat yourself to your children. Now, this requires wisdom. You don't want to be like... Somebody, somebody's car alarm was going off earlier, and uh, it was just... Be, be, it's just a constant, incessant, like striking the same note over and over with the exact perfect cadence to make me go crazy right? You can do that to your children, just like plucking the same banjo string, pluck, 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 just driving them crazy. What I'm not saying is say the exact same thing in the exact same way at the exact same time and think that you've done your job in reminding your children or one another, right? You have to be creative. You have to be empathetic. You have to listen. You have to have wisdom. You have to know when to push here and to pull back there, right? Don't say new things, that's dangerous. Say old things, but find new creative ways to say the same old things. Does that make sense? Christian, don't be afraid to preach the same truth to yourself over and over again. Don't be afraid to remind yourself of the gospel over and over and over again. You know, 
this idea of preaching to yourself, it didn't grow out of like new age counseling techniques like positive self-talk. They stole that from us. In the Bible, we are told over and over again that one of the main ways that we fight sin is by reminding ourselves of who we are in light of the resurrection. Right? You have to tell yourself, I'm in the light, not in the darkness. I belong to God, not to Satan. I'm a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of this world. I've been buried and raised together with Christ. Therefore, I have a new life available to me and I don't have to sin. Right? All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Even suffering. You're supposed to be preaching those things to yourself. And if you haven't tried it, if you haven't gotten into the regular rhythm of that, you're really missing out on one of the main instruments of sanctification that God has given you. I've been doing it for a while now, and I feel like I'm just now really starting to get the benefits of it, where I can actually say the gospel to myself if no one else is there to say it to me, and I go, dang, Sean, that's a really good point. I'm good. To the fellow elders and aspiring elders in the church, don't worry about being repetitive. Your job as an elder is to say the same thing 10,000 times. I know that it can feel stale to you. I know that it feels like it's growing old to you. But to the people who are listening to you, you they may not have ever even heard you say that before. I wrestle with this all the time in my sermon. Like, should I, should I use this illustration? I feel like I've used it a bunch and then I'll decide to use it and someone will come up to me afterwards and they'll be like, I've never heard that before. It changed my life. And I'm like, I literally told you that last week, right? <laughs> Sometimes you can say something a hundred times to the point where you're blue in the face, you're like exasperated, you're like nothing is getting through. And then for whatever reason, you decide to say it for the hundred and first time and the person finally actually hears you. You know why, right? Because God has a sense of humor, <laughs> No, there's probably a better theological answer than that. Probably because if you, would have, if you would have said it the first hundred times and they would have got it, you probably would have gloried in yourself. Right? But it's only when you come to the end of yourself and you've basically given up, then you say it and they get it. Well, now who gets the glory? Right? But he does have a sense of humor. Now, let's go back to this hitting the same note. Uh, one author says that nagging dwells next door to reminding, right? Nagging dwells next door to reminding. So I'm not calling on you to annoy your fellow church members into compliance. Listen to the way Peter, we read this earlier in our service, listen to the way Peter talks about reminding as a ministry in the church. He says, I think it's right as long as I'm in this body, listen to this language, to stir you up by way of reminder, right? The idea is that there's, there's already a fire in your heart, but it's just growing dull. So my reminder when I speak that to you is just I'm, meant to, I'm coming, I'm trying to breathe oxygen into those coals. I'm trying to gently but consistently and forcefully apply the truth to your heart in such a way that, that those little embers begin to flame up into a roaring fire that erupts in praise. Now, most of my application this morning, ooh, that's warm, <laughs> has been from the perspective of you as the reminder, right? So you're reminding people. 
But there's also the you that needs to be reminded. That's what's interesting about this ministry. At various points in your walk, and sometimes even in the same hour, you will need to be the reminder and the person needing to be reminded. So members of Sixth Avenue, let's do our best to make it easy for our fellow church members to remind us of the gospel and all of its implications. Whenever someone begins a journey in a particular field or craft or discipline, they always go through the same four stages. Phase one, excited and ignorant, right? And in that time, you're like, man, I really wish I had someone to teach me. If they did, I would work so hard. I would listen so well. I would learn so much. It would be so great. Then you have phase two. You get a teacher. And you're eating up all of their knowledge. You know, they're like a god to you. They know so much. They have so much experience. And you're even probably a little naive at this stage, right? But if they say it, you believe it, and you try to do it. Then there's phase three, the teenage phase. You still, act, you still ask questions. You know you don't know it all. But really, you do know it all. Right? You get frustrated when your teacher tries to help you. You feel smothered. You're trying to find your own voice, your own technique, your own path. And you really just don't want to hear the same old things over and over again. What you once thought was unique and brilliant, you now believe to be tired and cliched. Phase four, the relearning phase. This is when you realize that all the flashy, exciting, novel things that you thought were so cool and authentic were actually just distractions. You realize that true mastery is found in mastering the basics. You realize that in order to be truly advanced, you have to go back and focus on the fundamentals. Now take this and overlay it on your spiritual journey as a disciple of Jesus in the church. You get saved... And you come to the church and you're excited and ignorant. But then you get some real discipleship. Maybe one-on-one, maybe in a small group, maybe just by being a member of a healthy church. And you eat it up. You're like a sponge. You can't get enough of that fresh gospel goodness. You ask questions. You listen carefully. You take notes. You try to apply all this knowledge consistently. You're like a weed growing up out of the soil. But then you hit those teenage years. You start to get puffed up with knowledge. You think that just because you know more than you used to know, that you know more than you actually know. And you don't even know that that's what you're doing. All the parents of teenagers in the house go, Amen, brother. The people who are discipling you, the people who love you in the church, They're trying to remind you, according to Philippians 3.1, of of these good gospel truths. They're trying to exhort you in them because you're quick to forget. But you don't have any patience for their counsel. You know better than they do. You don't need all that. It's just, I've heard it all before. But if the Lord is kind, and He is, you will eventually grow out of this stage you will begin to recognize that the truly deep things of God are the basics of the gospel. 
And you'll realize that you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to master these things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Gather with the body of Christ in unity. Share your faith in evangelism. Suffer well to the glory of God. Serve the poor with your resources. Fight sin. Support missions. Eventually, you begin to realize that spiritual mastery is mastery of these fundamentals. Fundamentals like rejoice in the Lord always. I used to have this guy, he would always drive me crazy. I would be talking to him about some theological thing, you know, trying to parse out the finer points of this doctrinal matter. And he'd be like, dude, I'm just trying to do all things without grumbling. And I'm like, dude, I'm just, help me, work with me here. But I think he was on to something, right? Not that doctrine doesn't matter. But he was like, man, I'm just trying to master these fundamentals, I think when I was having those conversations with him, I was in the teenage phase. He was very patient and kind with me, even as I was. Eventually, we should all come to understand that we are no different than every other sinner. We are prone to forget. So when this happens, when we start to mature in this way, your walk with Jesus begins to take on a different tone. You start to look forward to the gospel presentation in the sermon every week, right? When you're in your teenage phase and, and, and Sean goes to preach the gospel again, you're like, again with this? You know, he's preaching from the gospel of John. He's, he's going to give the same. But when you're in your like mature phase, you're like, yeah, give it to me again. I almost forgot it. This week has been tough. I almost forgot it. Give it to me again. Don't even change a word of it. I don't even think I understood it last week. When you begin to mature, you begin to eagerly look forward to things like the celebration of the Lord's Supper because you realize what a gift it is to be reminded of the body and blood of Christ, something that we probably just don't think about that much, as much as we should. Rather than rolling your eyes when someone quotes Romans 8.28 to you in the midst of suffering, uh, again, is that the only verse you know, Romans 8.20, all things work together for the... I know that verse. Instead of that, you'll say, yes, give it to me again. And again, slow down. Let me get my Bible out. Let me read it with you. All things. I don't think I understand that. I thought I understood it. I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to understand. You're, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. War, famine, disease, miscarriage. And you're going to say, thank you. Thank you for being willing to serve me in this way and to tell me this truth that, to be honest with you, I think I've forgotten. Rather than groan when we hear the same gospel truth, our hearts will fill with affection because we realize that we are surrounded by people who love us enough to tell us the truth. In our scripture reading this morning, Peter told us that the ministry of reminding was an expression of love. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them. Did you catch that? I want to remind you, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. That is spiritual maturity, right? When he's reminding, he goes, I know you know this, but I'm going to say it to you again anyways. 
If you've ever been counseled by me in the church, I've probably said something like that to you at some point. I know you know this, but we're going to say it out loud again, right? What this means for you as well when you're being reminded is you don't get to say, oh, I don't need to be reminded of that. I already know it. Wrong. It's because you know it that you need to be reminded again. You might be tempted to say, I don't need to remind my fellow church members. They already know it. Wrong. Paul says not only do they know it, but they are firmly established. That's not an over-translation. When you look in the Greek, it doesn't just say established. It says firmly established. What he's saying is you never get so firmly established that you don't need to be reminded of the gospel again. He continues. I think it right, as long as I'm in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. He's about to die. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Paul says, listen, I love you so much. It's been my honor, my joy, my privilege to shepherd you in the Lord. But I'm going to die soon. So my ministry to you until I go is to say the same things over and over and over again. I'm going to stir you up so that when I'm gone and you go through these trials and tribulations and I'm not around, you'll say, it's in here. I know he loved me. He made sure that I knew these truths. Kids, listen to me. Mom, dad, if your kid's not paying attention, get him to focus. If your babies are too young, just hold their faces in my general direction. <laughs> right? Your mom and dad might sometimes drive you crazy when they tell you the same things over and over again. But trust me when I tell you that it is because they love you and they want the best for you and they're doing that which is safe for you. One of the worst things that your parents could do is tell you something once and then move on with their life. You won't understand how important this is until probably I'm dead and gone. But you kids, you really should honor your parents as they do that. You don't, you don't want to make the mistake and, and wait and honor them when they're gone. Right? You can honor them now. And even when they're frustrating you and they said the same thing for the 15,000th time, you, you can just say thank you and obey them and listen to them. To the members of 6th Avenue, I want you to know that your pastors, like Paul, like Peter, like Jesus, are committed to a, a ministry of remembrance among you. As long as in, you are in this body, you should just be prepared to have us say the same things over and over and over again because we are committed to stirring you up. We are not long for this body. And as long as I'm here, I'm going to repeat myself until I'm blue in the face. Now, as we close, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> Look at the language that Paul uses here. He says, I would remind you Brothers, sorry, starting in verse 1. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, 
in which you stand, right? There's that, that firmly planted language that Peter uses, right? You believed it, you're standing on it, but I've got to remind you, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. Here's what I want you to see. One of the main ways that God guarantees that you persevere in the faith, that you make it home to be with him in heaven, is that he gives you someone to constantly preach the gospel to you, right? There's a sense in which the ministry of remembrance is not that miraculous. It's, it's actually pretty ordinary. It's so ordinary, as a matter of fact, that theologians give, give it the name ordinary means of grace. So the grace there communicates that it is in some sense miraculous, but the means by which that miracle comes to you is very ordinary means, right? You're tempted to forget. You don't want to forget How are you not going to forget through the ordinary means of grace like prayer, scripture reading, Bible study, the ordinances, but the main instrument that God uses to remind you of the gospel and keep you for the last day is the regular preaching of God's word on the Lord's day, right? Think about what you've been doing here for the last 35 minutes, 40. You've been sitting here remembering focusing, meditating on the Word of God. You've been thinking about who God is and who you are in relation to God. You've, I think at some level, whether you realize it or not, you've been evaluating your life in light of the reality of the gospel, all just by sitting here letting me remind you of the Word of God. God uses that to keep you. So do not despise, brothers and sisters, the Lord's day. Make it a priority in your life. Make it so that no matter what happens, the Lord's Day is something that you always have clear in your schedule. Even if it's frustrating sometimes here and now, in heaven, you will be thankful that you prioritize the remembrance of God's word together with the church. And in light of this whole sermon on remembrance and reminding and not being afraid to repeat yourself, let's remember the gospel together. The gospel says that God, who is good, holy, perfect, beautiful, glorious, and every other positive thing we could ever say about any being, he's all of that. He made us. And he loves us. And he he designed us to be in his presence, to rule as kings and queens on the earth, to reflect his glory. And then we sinned and we turned away from him and we chose our own glory Instead of choosing what he loves, we chose something else, that which he hates. And not only did we do it once, we continue to do it. You're going to do it today. You're probably going to go out and make a decision that does not reflect the fact that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's kind of the whole story of this Bible, is that God created us to be with him, to know him, to love him, to be kept by him, to enjoy him, and we constantly run away from him. We flee the light, we run into the darkness. We flee his love, we run to sin, which never satisfies. But because God's mercy is unfathomable, because his love for us is something that we can't even begin to comprehend, he did the unthinkable. He could have destroyed us. And as a matter of fact, he should have destroyed us. Because of our sin, we deserve hell and death and wrath. But he didn't give us what what we deserve. 
As a matter of fact, he gave us the opposite of what we deserve. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, the holy, spotless lamb of God. He sent his only begotten son to come and to be with us and to suffer for us. And when his son, Jesus, came, he lived the perfect life that we always fail to live. Every instance of failure to love God in your life, he never failed that. And then he went to the cross and he did that which we should have done. He died. And his death wasn't just a physical suffering, it was a spiritual suffering. He took the wrath of God, the punishment for sin, down on his shoulders. He absorbed it in his soul. And he did it because he loves us. Because he wants to bring us back home to the Father. And then God, to demonstrate that his sacrifice was worthy, raised Jesus up from the grave and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places where now he stands ready to receive anyone and everyone who will come to him if they will only repent and believe. There is no cost of admission. It doesn't matter if you're young or old or rich or poor or black or white or smart or dumb or intelligent or educated. It does not matter. You may be sitting here thinking, well, Sean, that sounds good, but honestly, I just don't know that I could come to God. I'm too messed up. I'm too broken. Wrong. There's no such thing as too messed up. There's no such thing as too broken. You are the one that he came to save. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, that sounds good, Sean, but I don't know that I actually need God. Well, you definitely need God. You need God more than people who obviously need God. And he loves you too. And he's made a way for you to be saved out of your sinful self-righteousness. Maybe that's why you're here today. To consider the God who knows you and who loves you, who sees all of your warts, all of your blemishes, all of your failures, all of your brokenness, all of your dirtiness, all of your shame. He sees it all. And he says, I want you to come home and be with me. The end of the story of the gospel is that everyone who does trust God will get to be with him. And it will be a celebration in heaven. We will enjoy him and his love forever and ever. But those who don't, those who ignore this call, those who ignore this plea, will be separated from him. They will be shut out of the presence of his glory. Well, there will be suffering forevermore. But if that happens to be you on that day, you cannot say... You must not say that you didn't know, that you didn't have a chance, that you never heard this story, that nobody ever made you the offer because here you are today. God is making his appeal to you through me. Receive Christ and let him love you and be the Lord of your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We ask for grace at the beginning of our time together today, and we have most certainly received it. You have reminded us of everything that we needed to hear and more. So we pray that you will sanctify us, that you will keep us in your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.